Hi, and welcome to Authors Annotated, a Gwinnett County Public Library podcast, where we chat with authors about their work, their creative processes, and their love of libraries. My name is Steve Thomas, manager of our Grayson branch, and on today's episode, we welcome Vanessa Riley, award-winning author of Sister Mother Warrior, Island Queen, and A Duke, the Spy, an Artist, and a Lie. Riley's historical novels showcase hidden histories of black women and women of color, and emphasize strong sisterhoods and dazzling multicultural communities. Take it away, Vanessa. Thank you, Gwinnett Library. And of course, Eagle Eye Bookshop for supporting me. It's a pleasure to be here. And I'm excited. This is day two of the birth of Sister Mother Warrior, my latest historical fiction. I have about 21 slash 25 plus books out in the world. So they're old enough to drink and... You know, one of my favorite authors says, if there's a book that you want to read, but it hasn't been written, then you must write it. Toni Morrison said that, and I took it to heart. Because there are stories that haven't been told. Many of the women that I feature are famous during their time frame. And when I say famous, they are known not only in the West Indies, but in England, in America. There are write-ups and papers. The woman Abadoya Toya, is a national hero in Haiti for her funeral. It is a celebrated procession with horse-drawn carriage carrying her coffin. Her coffin is strewn in flowers as it's going down the hill to her place of burial. A national hero. And today, she's like two lines in a comic book or a children's book. I was speaking last night, I had the privilege of speaking at the Atlanta History Center last night. A woman from Haiti, grown up in Haiti, she said, we hear about the men and the women are given one line. And so as a writer, you always look for your calling, your passion. And for me, it is to return these stories because when we forget history, we are subject to repeat it. When we discard history, we devalue ourselves. And when we let the victors, because the victors have the ones who've been telling the stories, the ones who focus the media, when we get a chance, and this is the beautiful time frame that we're living in, everyone can write a story. Everyone can get it out there. And everyone can find that value and showcase it. Because when little girls and little boys realize that their story is not just enslavement, that that vision of kings and queens in Africa It's so far away. It's more present when you think of your great-great-great-grandmother or your great-great-great-grandfather who overcame something and did something well. When I was writing this book, my father would tell us stories. And I kept remembering a rhyme that he kept saying. The lyrics, I'm a little shaky on, but it was something like, it was some sort of farce, but that rhythm came back to me when I was writing this book. And so there is a poem, the prophetic poem that is in Sister Mother Warrior is the beat is that same beat. So the things that we are poured into as children, it comes back. There are seeds that have been told to us, stories of our ancestors. It's in your soul. So let me tell you a little bit about this book. Sister Mother Warrior is my second historical fiction. And I, like many of you, saw that great movie a few years ago, Black Panther. And I saw kids running around going, you know, we're calling forever, you know, and they're doing all this great stuff. And somebody had the nerve to tell me that the Dory Miage 
was attributed or formulated from a real tribe in Africa. I said, what? They said, yeah. I said, what? Yeah. I have to go find out because that's the nerd in me. I'm going to go. I'm going to research. And I found that the Orimiage is modeled after the Minos. The Minos or the mothers are the second tier brides of the king of Dahomey. So the person who personally guarded the king were these warrior women. They guarded him and they guarded the first wives. These women were so revered that the European military was frightened of them. They would come in West Africa, and when they knew these women were coming, they would hunker back. They would double-arm themselves because these women, they thought, they called them witches. You know, all powerful women eventually are called witches. Y'all know that, right? They called them witches. But these women, when I lit, because I went into the, how do you become a Mino? Like, what happens? Like, do they just say, hey, you're born a Mino? <laughs> you get to, that's what you're going to do for the rest of your life? In some cases, that might be. But more so, when the Dahomey conquered other villages, other territories, they would go through the women and they'd sort them out. You might be a first wife. Hey, you got a cute first wife material right there. Second tier, you look like you could kick some behind. We got a job for you. And unfortunately, the third category, you're going to go walk down the Weeda Road. And I'll go back to that in a second. Abadoria Toya, because of her name, has Yorbanese roots to it. She had to have been one of these conquered people. So she was chosen to be Amino. And their training is so intense, I would call it, you know, 21st century, I'd call it brainwashing. <laughs> they would literally do activity after activity, strengthening these women. There was a hill that had acacia thorns. And one of the goals is you had to keep going up these thorns, no matter how many times it ripped into your palms until you felt nothing. That's how these women were trained. That's why they were focused. That's why the only thing that stopped these women in battle was better armament. If you've ever seen the Old West and they're shooting repetitively, you know that's a lie, right? These guns don't work like that. Muskets definitely don't work like that. You have to sit here. It's almost like uh, it could be anywhere. The, the good ones can get it down in 45 seconds. But if you ever see how far you can move in 45 seconds when you got a weapon in your hand, it's pretty fast. So until they got better weapons, these women were very successful defeating the French, defeating the Spanish, defeating the British soldiers that were coming into African lands. But when they got better armaments and cannons, it kind of evened the score up a little bit. So Abadoria is one of these warriors. She's a gal. A gal is one of their leaders. So she is training more women on how to do this. She gets captured and she goes through the Tangelinic Passage. She walks that Weta Road. Let me take a pause here. The Weta Road is extremely important. That is the road that if you were sold into enslavement, you would walk that road. One of the most uncomfortable pieces of my research was realizing that the Dahomey, this powerful warrior system, was part participant in enslavement. Dahomey would capture these villages. Remember I told you? So I didn't say what happened to the men. They really had no choice. 
They didn't trust the men that they just conquered. They figured that they would somehow try and overthrow. So they'd either kill the men and then take their skulls and put it on the top of their palaces to show how fierce they were, or they would send you down the Weeda Road. And when they sent you down the Weeda Road, they are selling you to the British, the Spanish, because all of the different, once they figured out how to make peace with the Dahomey, they would actually go to the palace in Cana and pay homage to the Dahomey kings, bring tribute to the Dahomey kings, and then get slaves from the Dahomey kings. So in the world of Dahomey, once again, if you're a man and they conquered your territory, you're either going to be a sacrifice right then and there, the quick death or the long death, being enslavement. If you're a woman and you're cute, you're going to get maybe that first wife potential. If you're strong, you'll be the second wife potential. And if you're number three, they figure that you can't be trained, you, you're not going to comply, then you will be sold down the Weeder Road. There is a, a television show or Netflix series called High on the Hog. In episode one, the host actually goes to West Ghana. And he's talking about the rice and all these different products that are coming back. But he actually walks that road. By the time he gets to the gate, he breaks down and cries. And I had just written that scene when I, I broke down and cried because I felt it. I do a lot of research in these books. I try and find first narratives. I research the actual map. I have maps so I know the extent of the Weeder Road and how long it's going to take you on foot and your thoughts that must be in your head as you are walking this road, knowing not they had heard rumors of what's going to happen. They just don't know. This is the end to them. They don't know if they're going to be drowned in the sea or if they're going to be transported someplace. The rumors of how hard and brutal are coming back. But they know they were not chosen. When you go on that Weeda Road, you're not chosen to be a member of the Dahomey tribe. You're being sold. So that's a piece we have to reconcile. She gets up. She's uh, through the transport. She gets to Santa Domingue. Now, for those who don't know, Santa Domingue, which is present-day Haiti, was the pearl of the Antilles. Adam Smith, the great economist, talks about how wealthy this colony is. This colony, because of sugar, coffee, and indigo, is the wealthiest of all the West Indian islands and colonies. Everybody wants it. The British want it. The French want it. The Spanish want it. The Portuguese want it. And when them darn Americans became Americans, they wanted it too. A frightening calculation. For every $5, four comes from enslavement, from the fruits of enslavement during that time frame. So it wasn't the moral right that was keeping enslavement a thing. It was the economic right. It took centuries for people to overcome the financial commitments to enslavement so that the morality of it would take hold. But you have Santa Domingue, the Pearl of the Antilles. Um, it is getting the most slaves. One, because it's the natural current path. So Haiti, natural current path, when you, you know, ships want to go the least resistance, you're going to use less wind power, et cetera, et cetera, to get there. But they also have the greatest need because the average lifespan of an enslaved person is 34 years. If you go to the United States, it's 44 years. Now, immediately, one would think, 
that that would mean, and to context, if you're not enslaved, if you are European descended, et cetera, et cetera, your average is 60 years. So in America, if you're enslaved, you're 44 years. Here in Haiti, it's 34 years. Now, one would assume that that's because maybe enslavement is easier in the United States. That would be a fallacy of an assumption. Cruelty is cruelty, boys and girls. It don't matter where you're at. But in the West Indies, we have something called bugs. We got something called yellow fever. We got something called diseases they done changed names for 400 different times. They get you, you're dead. If you are traveling out of the country and they say these little vaccinations, please get those vaccinations. Because unless you're born there and you've got that tolerance because you've been, the mosquito bites, it's going to take you out. And we all, you know, freaked out about COVID. No, no, no. You, <laughs> they got the old-fashioned stuff that'll really take you out. <laughs> and so make sure you get your vaccinations if you are traveling. When people look at Haiti today, they don't understand the legacy that is gone. Haiti or Santa Domingue was a cultural center. Some of the best soprano operettas are sung in Le Cap, Cap Francois, today Cap Haitian. Port-au-Prince was in all these various plays. When these wars started kicking up, they started, a lot of them came to Louisiana after the fact. But there's so much loss because this was a cultural center. That was surprising to me as I was doing this research. But Abadora, when she's enslaved, she has these other talents of uh, healing and uh, herbs. And so she is able to know the types of oils that you get from certain plants to put on the, the babe's lips so that they don't get lockjaw. Because many of these babies were being born because of the environment. They're catching these diseases and they would have lockjaw. They couldn't latch on, so they would starve to death. So she figured out how, through the herbs, once again, coming back, that's why I know she had to have been not born in the system, but one brought into the system in Dahomey. And authorisms, because we get to do this as an author, I attribute it to her mother, that her mother was an herbalist teaching these different things, because that knowledge is something you have to see to know which, because, you know, like you go in your garden, you don't know which one's a poisonous. You don't know which one. You got to know so that you will trust somebody to put it on your baby's lips that it's not going to kill this baby. So she had some sort of, to her training, before she became part of the homie, she had some sort of herbalist training. That gives her privileges because anybody on these habitations, which we would call plantations, the French call habitations, that gives you privileges. But see, Abadoria is still a warrior in her spirit. So she gets these privileges. She is beginning to teach the kids, give them exercises, and boy, these exercises look like military routines if you're not careful and watching. Because she has a plan. She believes they're going to be free again. And she believes this generation that is so disconnected from Mother Africa, if I teach them about astronomy, about how to move your troops based on star movement, on star positioning, that they will rise up and they will claim this land. And Abadoria has some soul searching because she drank the Kool-Aid. She believed what the king said. When the king says, this is what, the, we send these to Wida, we send these execution, etc. She carried all that out. She was a leader. So there are points in her fight when the fight starts happening. She was in her 60s. She could have just done a little bit and sat down. 
but she kept going. Somebody in their 60s, mid-60s, still actively picking up swords, going out in the battlefield, that is somebody with something to prove. That is somebody who's trying to right wrongs. So when I look at that as an author, that becomes my assertion because, unfortunately, women don't leave diaries and journals around. Men write, uh, first of all, I got to say, I love you, men. Y'all write everything down. Y'all write letters telling on your homies going back. I mean, I have found so much stuff from letters that men have written back to their families. It's amazing. It's books in itself. I get a lot of my romance ideas <laughs> from these letters. Women, we got to do better. We are very lucky to have Anne Frank's diary because we were able to understand what she was going through during the Holocaust. Women, it's very seldom. So what we have to do is we have to do anecdotal research. We've got to look at the folk tales. We've got to listen to the songs because a lot of the oral tradition is history that hasn't been written down. So when you're listening to the songs you've been growing up with, except for pop, I don't know, that may not be, <laughs> that may not happen. But when you listen to the songs that your parents, your grandparents are passing down, some of that is oral history. Some of that is the things that have happened to your family. Some of that is the things that have happened to your people. And you have to pay attention. So I love going back and looking at those types of things. So, but Abadori is training these people. And there's one young man in particular that she pays special interest to. And this man named Jean-Jacques. Jean-Jacques Desalines is regarded as one of the military geniuses of the time. This man born in enslavement is able to lead the indigenous army, as it was called, because he was, he called the Tainos from the mountain, the enslaved that are now free on the island, the free peoples. He gathers them all together and they are able to defeat the French. The French right now, at that point in time, Napoleon is on a terror. He is taking over country after country. And many believe that if he was not stopped at Santa Domingue, he would have been emboldened to keep going. This young man, Jean-Jacques Desalines, was trained by Abadora. So this man who comes from enslavement, who now knows how to position his troops as they go through the mountains, as he knows the best routes to choose, as he knows how to surround the enemy in blockade. He has learned that all from Abadoya. So when I found this woman, I had to write about her because who could not, right? <laughs> but then as I keep researching, as, as one often does, I find another incredible woman in Santa Domingue, and her name is Mary Claire Bonaire. Now, unlike Jean-Jacques and Abadoya, Mary Claire was born free. She's never been enslaved. There is a huge earthquake in 1770, and she and her mother go out, and they are feeding the poor. They're feeding everybody who's been displaced. Feeding people becomes the mission of her life. She will risk her life at different points to go out and feed people. There is a battle in 1800, literally 1800. The Battle of Jacmel. And Jacmel now has been surrounded on all sides by a blockade. So no food can come in, no people can come in, and the battle is, is horrendous. Mary Claire has now heard about this because the doctor has been writing to where she lives saying they need medicine, they need supplies, anything, that people are eating the horses. When you eat your horse, you have no hope. Your horse was your transportation. 
your horse was pulling plows, equipment. You eat your horse, you're like, I'm, I'm done. Let's just kill the horse. <laughs> that's, that's it. So she knows how bad the starvation is going. So she leads a group of young women on a mule train. And all these young women are dressed in white because she thinks if they dress in white on a mule train, that everybody will stop fighting. Now, first of all, that's some kind of faith. Because first of all, I'm not dressing in white on a mule. Mule are not clean animals. That white is not going to stay white for long on mule trains. But I digress. Secondly, these people who are fighting, you don't know who on which side and, and if they have any respecter of life. And you're going to be on a mule train because you want to feed some people that aren't related to you. <laughs> you want to go down there. I don't know. That's some kind of faith. But she does it and she goes and both sides stop fighting. It's she's and she's binding up wounds on both sides, the French side, on on the indigenous side. She is taking care of all of this. Personally, she is the first battlefield nurse. She predates Mary C. Cold and Florence Nightingale because we're talking 1800, like 1800. But she is not credited for that. The man who, on the indigenous side, who stops one half of the fighting and has to climb up to a fort and yell out to the other side, hey, stop, we got some women and want to feed, is Jean-Jacques Desalines. And some accounts say that's when they met and they get married months later. Hold up now. Y'all know that, right? Ain't nobody you gonna meet in the middle of a battlefield. You trying to feed people, you gonna just jump up and marry? No. When you go look at the record, they actually have a very long relationship. They were born in the same year, in 1758, literally a few weeks apart. When you look at the mountains in the very last battle, if you just go a little further on those battles, you go exactly to where Mary Claire was going to school. I firmly believe they knew each other from then. And to me, that makes this one of the love stories we need to know about between Mary Claire and Jean-Jacques. Because of the war, because of the distance, because she is free and he is enslaved, there are so many things against this, this relationship. If they were to marry while he's enslaved, the children will be enslaved. They have to be free. He has to figure out how to be free. So there's so many different complications. But when you look at the extent of their relationship, and for this book, Unfortunately, or fortunately, I had to do a lot of translation in French, like more than I accounted for. Because I'm a weed girl. I will go and find the weeds and all these sorts of things. There was a lot of translation in French and Creole. And uh, I prayed a lot <laughs> during this time frame. But I wanted, if I had not, I would have missed some of the most beautiful nuggets. Matteo actually interviews Mary Claire 10 years after the freedom. So it's still fresh. And so she's able to give these little vignettes about Jean-Jacques. Like he liked to dance. Who would have thunk it, right? Military genius. He liked to dance. He liked the drums. And these are those little moments that I was able to infuse into the book. So as I return these people, Mary Claire and Abadoya Toya, I just don't want to tell you a story of the wife of, the woman behind the man kind of books. And those are great books. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I want to put you in their shoes or sandals. I want you to understand what they went through. 
Most people focus on just from 1791, the Great Awakening at Boys Kamen, and they go 1793 and then the big push in 1804 for independence, etc. It started 50 years before that. In 1758, this magical year when Jean-Jacques is born and Mary Claire, women have been standing up and saying, we don't want any more abuse. They have begun poisoning people on the habitations. They've been poisoning the Grand Blanc, which we would call Massa here in the United States. It's Grand Blanc in the French system. The French, when you're studying the West Indies, you have to know who colonized the islands because the British rules for being free are different than the French rules, which are different than the Spanish rules, which are different than the Portuguese rules. And the French were insidious in some of their rules. And it came back to bite them in various ways because they had something called the Code Noir. Now, the Code Noir said that if you have a baby by your enslaver and he claims it, then you and the baby are free. Now, what would that do for women? in that society who want to be free. They're codifying ways to entice women to get certain behaviors. But what that happened was that spurred a class of people called colored. So in Santa Domingue, you have blacks, which are Afranchi blacks, which are free blacks. You have enslaved blacks, which are still on the habitation. You have Afranchi colored, the ones that weren't claimed. And then you have a Franchi coloreds that are free. And the Franchi colored that are free are supposed to have all the rights and privileges of the Blancs. Now, we know that doesn't happen, right? You know that's tension. And once again, the laws are being used that because the Franchi colored were so successful in their trade and making money that they made laws saying that the Franchi colored had to lend them money, had to lend the Blancs money at certain interest rates because the Afranchi colored were so prosperous. Anytime you have a people that becomes prosperous, they become a threat to the majority. And they will use laws to control them, to control their person. Now, I'm not saying it doesn't sound familiar to some of the things that are going on today, but this is why we have to understand history, because everything repeats itself. This book, I'm going to take you behind the scenes so you guys get to see Women in Action, I firmly believe that the Haitian Revolution was successful because women played an integral role. Of all the rebellions, every one of the colonies is rebelling. There's some in Demerara, which is present-day Guyana. Uh, if you buy Island Queen, you'll know all about it. There are rebellions happening in Jamaica. Every colony is rebelling. But only Santa Domingue, present-day Haiti, is the only one that is successful. So by 1804, there's the final push, and Haiti becomes free. They have to govern themselves. And so Jean-Jacques writes a constitution where everyone becomes black, no matter who you were. If you were Taino, if you were Caucasian, if you were Spanish, you're all black now. And everybody is free, and everybody has the same privileges. To me, it's a revolution that we need to know more about. The Haitian people fought in the American Revolution. But when we go to our history books, you will find these same characters, maybe not characterized in the most positive light. You will find them talking about 
executions and massacres. They rounded up everybody who was against them when they won. And there was a massacre. There was about 3,000 people that were massacred. Four months prior to that, there was 10,000 blacks chained, hands behind the back, and thrown into the sea right off of Le Cap. Napoleon decided, and Leclerc, his general, agreed, that anybody over the age 12 would never accept enslavement again. So they systematically began to kill them. The whole purpose was to kill everyone over age 12 and bring in a brand new set of slaves so that this rich economy, the Pearl of Antilles, would keep going. So everybody who was fighting the fight knew what was at stake. And they did not stop until they won. So when we look at history, we need the full context. And the victors have told a story. And they've left out facts. Because one of the most cruel individuals is the son of the, one of our revolutionaries, Rochambeau. That boy is stone crazy. Some of the exploits that he did, I left out of the book. I just left in two of the things that Rochambeau did. Makes you want to go find his grave and stomp on it. I mean, the boy is a hot mess, and he was allowed to do these things. I give you this context of the life and the joy, because people find moments, even in this crazy, of joy. So I think I took a very balanced approach. I am not the queen of downers, if you can tell in this presentation, but I am about getting the facts right. So in the back of my book, you will have a bibliography so you can see the sources. You want to go translate Matteo, you go for it. It was not very great reading for several weeks on end, but it was the most informative things that you can get to. I always build a timeline. And so I have an extensive timeline from 1750 to 1830. Everything that has happened in the world that I know of at this moment in time is on that timeline. And then I overlay that with the person's birth date, death date, anywhere that I can find it through birth records, through purchase records, where were they? And then I look around and see what happened. Like I talk about, which isn't in the book because the book was getting along, we had to cut it, the earthquake in 1770. I can't show you that, but I knew it was there and I will not bend those. The fiction part is the motivations. And so as a junior psychologist, you know, we all play psychologists on TV. When I look at somebody like Abadoya, who had a lot of opportunities after she was freed in Santo Domingo to just sit back. But she keeps in the fight. She keeps leading troops. She keeps training people. Jean-Jacques gives her the title of a corporal at one point. He has her at the table with Toussaint Louverture. At, at these big military generals are coming in, and you've got this old woman just sitting there, looking at, you know, looking at what's going on. That tells me what kind of person she is, or at least the characteristics and that's what I want to convey. So I, I do a lot of analysis, situational analysis, but that, the emotional arcs, that is me trying to make you feel the story. I have no necessarily, I have a good, based on the historical record, I understand. Like that finding that whole venue that Jean-Jacques likes to dance and that he was a jokester gave me bits and pieces that I can infuse into conversations, into motivations. But those dates, man, I am set. And it has sucked wind a couple of times. It's like, if I only had a few more days, I could have done. No, I'm a stickler. And 
whenever you are breaking ground or returning stories that people don't know, people will question you intensely. And if I were to move dates, it would make whatever else I'm saying suspect. And that's not what I'm doing. I will leave that to someone else if they want to move some things around. And I have great friends who move things. And they'll fully admit it in their author's note. Dad, not me. I'm a stickler. I will give the timeline. This is the timeline. It's the twists and turns. I've laid them out for you. And so there's places for historians to go in and do deeper dives. But I'm going to take you through an epic journey with people who strove to be more, strove to right wrongs, and to gain freedom for this very precious colony. I collect stories. So as a writer, you will find things, right? And you'll just put it aside. And sooner or later, you'll have that moment where you'll do the research and you will begin the story. Because I found Abadoria first. But that's only one side of the story. And I was looking for something to balance it out because the enslaved perspective versus the free perspective. And then there's the whole thing of colorism, which is huge. By telling Mary Claire's story, I was able to show you the causations and the effects of colorism in the story. Because Mary Claire's grandfather had to have been a Grand Blanc because of how she is freed. And because of the privileges that she and her mother have at a hospital that she's working for. And through that, I'm able to vary shades of her aunt and herself, as well as Mary Claire, to show you the colorism story. I got a lot of stories running in my head, but I'm picking and choosing because I like mirrors. I want to show you what is going on from a political sense. The world is a lot smaller than we think. So people in Haiti knew what was going on in Cuba. They knew what was going on in America. They knew what was happening in Britain, et cetera. We're living in a time, I started this talk, we're living in a time where the book, if it's not there, you get to write it. There are so many avenues. For my career, it's somewhat of a storied past. My first book was traditionally published. And then the browner my manuscripts got, the more difficult it was to find a house. They were Some of the greatest rejections in the world I got. Hey, we love her voice. You got anything else? Hey, this is a great story. We don't know how to market this. But when you have a gift, if you get no and you turn away, then it wasn't a gift. It was just a dream. And not a good one. You've got to keep going. So I kept going. I independently published like books 2 through 15 were independently published. And then you know what happened? Hey, Vanessa, we see what you're doing there. Would you like to publish with us? And I'm like, who are you and how did you get my number? But it was the best move to go back to do traditional because that's when my work got in PR, Washington Post. And then it just kept going and until I went to a conference, Historical Novel Society. And this is where you can step into, step on your blessings. So, so. I paid $350 or $400 to go to this conference, and you still had to pay $20 to speak to an editor. And I was like, you already taxed me for $400? $20? Really? And my friend said, 
honey, you already paid four hundred. What? Why are you just pay the twenty dollars? I was like, I don't want to pay the twenty dollars. She's like, do it. Just pay the twenty dollars. And I paid the twenty dollars, and I was at a table with an editor from William Morrow, and I told the story of Dorothy Kerwin Thomas about this woman who'd been enslaved that bought her freedom and the freedom of her family, that she has an affair with Prince William Henry, the future King William IV, this beautiful, dark-skinned woman who blows away all the stereotypes that we have been led to believe. And then she builds businesses across the West Indies, becomes one of the wealthiest women. And when the men of Demerara become worried about these Black women, these women of color that have this economic power, they begin to tax them for all the rebellions that are happening, saying that they should have stopped these rebellions. Yeah, like, okay, this is almost as bad as the women on the white mule. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not. People want to rebel. I'll be like, y'all go for it. Pass my doorstep. I'm not stopping y'all. Um, but they wanted to tax them. So Dorothy paid the first tax. Then she got on a boat, went from Demerara, which is below the equator, all the way up to London, forced a meeting with Lord Bapthurst, the Secretary of Colony and War. He took the meeting because she showed up in a carriage, like an eight-horse carriage. The thing stretched the entire length of the street. He thought he was meeting with a royal from one of the islands. So he took the meeting, but she's able, during that meeting, to convince him how wrong this tax is. He fires the governor. He abolishes the tax. Dorothy goes home, a hero saving generational wealth for women of color, black women in Demerara. She bought that story at the table. And I almost missed my blessing because of $20. <laughs> I'm very blessed to be able to tell these stories. Publishing is opening up in a way that it hasn't been. And they want stories, diverse stories, stories that write the history wrongs. Because they understand that they have not been telling all the stories. And when you guys show up at events like this, it shows them that we want to hear these stories. Because that's what it comes about. Publishing is a business. They're not a charity. Remember that. They're not going to publish something that doesn't sell. They want to make money. And so by you guys being here, buying books, that shows them that we want to read these books and to make avenues. I had conversations with Beverly Jenkins. and. For a long time, Beverly Jenkins was it. And the publisher would say, we got Beverly Jenkins. Why do we need anybody else? I'm telling these stories in historical fiction. I don't want, well, we got Vanessa. We don't need nobody else. No, I'm opening this door. And it's one of the reasons I specifically put the bibliographies, because there's some other researcher who can get some nugget from what I've done and tell stories that I haven't found. Get out there. We need these stories. We need it represented. Thank you for listening to Authors Annotated, a podcast from Gwinnett County Public Library. And thanks again to Vanessa Riley for speaking with our community. You can find her books on our catalog at gwinnettpl.org. You can also find out more about the library's podcasts at gwinnettpl.org slash podcasts. And then follow them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. Thanks for listening and supporting your Gwinnett County Public Library.